0: Last week we began study of a new book of Scripture in the Old Testament, the book of Job, located just before the Psalms. Job is a very unusual book. I think it requires a careful and slow introduction, and then we'll move a lot faster. So for the second time, I address chapter 1, and I hope to do that once more before we move on. I'm going to back up and read the first five verses that I did read last week, And go on through verse 12 today. The book of Job, unknown author. Job is the main character, but he's not the author. Listen to this writing of the Word of God. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them He would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all, for he said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed, the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. This is God's ever-living Word. I begin today with a scene from a movie that has to be just about one of the most popular of all time, and it's really hard to imagine someone here not having ever seen The Wizard of Oz from 1939. You'll recall that early in this film, there's a building sense of everyone putting their hopes in an unseen wizard Who lives in the city of Oz. He's called the great and terrible or great and mighty Wizard of Oz. And everyone hopes that he could transport the character Dorothy back to Kansas, give a scarecrow brains, give a tin man a heart, and give a cowardly lion great courage. But the crucial moment of the film comes when the four characters have carried out a mission that the wizard gave them, and they bring back the burned broomstick of the wicked witch who has met her demise, and uh, they're ready to collect their promised rewards. And you remember the scene how Toto, the dog, who bears a strange resemblance to Hazel at our house, actually, uh, pulls back a curtain in the corner to reveal an older man there who is working levers and shouting into a microphone, and of course what is being revealed is that the great wizard is simply a befuddled old man pretending to be something else through the belching of fire and smoke and a loud voice. In other words, you receive the -the behind-the-scenes reality, and it changes everything in the film. Now, in Job 1, 6, and following, we have a passage of God's Word that the longer I think about it, I have to say is entirely unique. I can think of nothing like it in the Word of God at all, for its unusual content in particular. Throughout this book of Job, the title character, Job the Great Sufferer, never knew what went on in these verses that I read today. He was completely ignorant the entire time of what was behind the scenes, while you and I know it because it's been revealed to us. Now, I'm certainly not suggesting that our great God is equal to this phony charlatan wizard who pretended to be something that he wasn't. But my point is that there was for Job no toto to the dog to pull back the curtain and show him what God had really been doing and was doing as all of his sufferings unfolded. And you wonder, had he known that God was really his benevolent friend and protector, how would Job have reacted differently? Because it was his supposition most of the way through this book that God was against him, and against him for no reason. And he fought against that and chafed under that and argued with that. What would have been different if he had seen behind the scenes at who God really was to him? Well, last time we began considering this book of Job by simply meeting the character who lived in Uz, not Oz, and uh, was a fabulously rich man. I think certainly on a relative scale, he probably would have been called a billionaire if you translated his wealth into our day. Father of ten known by his neighbors to be morally upright, a just man, a godly man. You see him almost standing on his head to offer sacrifices, even just in case one of his children might have sinned against the Lord, not even knowing whether they had or not. He was a man of preventive godliness and preventive sacrifices and prayers. I suggested last time Job was not a book, as many assume it is, about suffering, at least not suffering in general. It's much more particular than that. It's a book about the sufferings of the righteous, the sufferings of those who cannot easily at least see some one-to-one relationship between evil or hardship that's happening to them and sin that they have done. And we're going to hear people coming along and proposing all kinds of theories. Most of them have in common the idea that, well, if you would just repent the right way, I'm sure you've done something wrong or all this bad stuff would not be happening to you. And that doesn't help Job at all because there's no cause-effect relationship to be found between what's happening to him and uh, his sin, even though he would never say he was without sin. We face this question. I'm going to ask it a couple different ways as our theme today. The question is, is God great enough that he can be loved purely for who he is and not merely for the gifts or the benefits that he bestows? Or you could ask it, will a man hold on to God when there are no obvious benefits to doing that? Or even another way to ask it is, is the glory of God more important than my own personal comfort? First of all today, I actually have four points, but they're not real long. The first point is to have us look at this odd dialogue between God and another person in verses 6 through 12. Along with me, perhaps you are scratching your head as we looked at this, if you haven't read this part of Job in a long while, and you're asking, how are we supposed to understand this very strange meeting that takes place in the presence of God? Is it a fable? Is it a myth? What is it? Well, I'm going to give kids, a vocabulary word today, and and you'll get a gold star from the start if you know this word, because probably a lot of adults don't know the word, anthropomorphic. That's a big one, anthropomorphic. Let's say I wrote a story to read to my grandchildren, and all the characters in the story were rabbits, But, of course, these rabbits uh, are fictional, but they're alive in the story, and they're communicating with one another and having adventures. And one rabbit says, let's go over there. There's some great lettuce. And the other rabbit says, no, there's a bad farmer over there. He'll get us with his shotgun. And what am I doing? I'm making rabbits think and speak and act as if they were human beings with the thinking and the speech of human beings. That's what literature calls anthropomorphism. Very big word. Anthropomorphism, making someone like they were human, like a man. You see this as a figure of speech in the Bible very often. The Bible might say, God sent a storm by his outstretched arm. Well, we don't think God has an arm But we understand what's being said. God, by his power and control, sent a storm or stopped a storm. That's an anthropomorphism about God, describing him in human terms that we can better understand. We think that's what's happening here with the description of this conference in heaven. Now, I am very much in favor of literal understanding of the Bible. There was a real conference here. But yet it is rendered in such a way that we can hopefully conceive of what was going on. What was happening here was, I'm sure, beyond our real comprehension. But it has been simplified as a story or almost like a parable so that we can understand what was happening. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and somebody else was there. The Hebrew Bible calls that somebody else The Satan. Very interesting. Throughout this passage, he is called the Satan. Now you're saying, what is this? Who are these sons of God, first of all? And what is Satan doing having a meeting with God? Nowhere else in the Bible is any such thing described. Well, the Bible author and the Holy Spirit are telling us a true thing and trying to simplify it enough that we can take it in. God often is called in Scripture the Lord of hosts, meaning many, the Lord of many creatures, many others who gather in His presence. That's why we hear about the sons of God. This is a common biblical expression. It's used a number of other places to describe the angels who the Lord created to do His bidding and do His work. There's a psalm that that really kind of illustrates what's happening here. Psalm 89, verse 6, contains this language. Who in the skies can compare to the Lord? Who among the sons of God is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. You see, That biblical language is not so unusual. You could find other instances of it. The idea of God delegating his government of the universe to other beings whom he has created, angel beings, supernatural beings, who Scripture implies are more than men. They're not mortal like men, but they're not God either. They're somewhere between God and man. God has no equals in his Hosts who gather around him. He is absolutely alone and supreme over them, but they are in some way over creation and over men. Later on, we even find some of them, a few being given names like Gabriel and Michael. All right, well, that's just a hint of how we're to understand this strange meeting. It tells us something true that was happening, however strange it might seem for you to be able to picture it. Now, secondly, this, as we go on with it a little bit, tells us about the work of our soul's great enemy, and that is this one who is called in the original language the Satan who is present. In other words, Satan was a title, much like Christ is a title, the Satan. We, we think that's, you know, Satan's given name. My name is Michael. His name is Satan. No, it's more like Christ, it's his office. The opposer, the accuser is what it means. One writer, I thought it made a pithy comment when he said, "As we see this unexpected presence in the Council of God here, we're not clear about whether Satan is present in God's council as a member of it, or perhaps more of a gate crasher." I like that comment. I imagine him being the gate crasher. And the Lord God interrogates him, and and you sort of have it hinted that he doesn't really belong there because I feel like the Lord is saying, what are you doing here? You know, what brought you here? Give an account of yourself. And he says, well, I've just been walking up and down the earth seeing what's going on. And it is God who brings into the discussion then the proposal of the man, Job, and says, well, you've been seeing what's going on. Have you seen an example of a man who is righteous? There in the east, this man, Job, who is, uh, stands head and shoulders above all his fellow worshipers of me, and it's proposed that Satan consider that. What do you think of that? Well, what do we know about this person, the Satan. I think what jars us here is we think of Satan as the absolutely hateful, violent, rebellious, anti-God in every possible way. And what would he even be doing in the presence of the Lord? Of course, we first met him in the Garden of Eden where he is called the serpent. Really unfortunate, I think, that our children are treated to generations of pictures of snakes talking to Adam and Eve. The serpent means shining one. If Satan was a fallen angel, he wasn't a snake. The word serpent, unfortunately, we think serpent, snake, snake, serpent. Serpent probably meant someone very beguiling, someone very persuasive, someone who could sell you Hillary Clinton's former Oldsmobile for $60,000 like somebody just paid, I understand. Boy, that was a car salesman behind that one, I'll tell you. The car doesn't even start. But here's this accuser, this liar, and we think, well, he doesn't belong anywhere in the presence of God. But the interesting thing I need to tell you is there's sort of a character development going on through the pages of Scripture with Satan, and he's not, from the start, the terrible, re- re- you know, repulsive person that you would see him as by the time you get to the New Testament. Not that he's a good guy ever. But he's not the hideous dragon of the book of Revelation until after he has his encounters with Christ. It's when Christ, the perfect opponent of Satan, comes on the scene and he does battle with someone who defeats him at every turn that he becomes more and more violent and spiteful and attacking all things belonging to God. Although at no point are we going to say he was a good guy. In fact, Jude chapter 6 has a word there. You probably haven't read the book of Jude lately, a one-chapter book near Revelation. Jude 6, verse 6 that is, not chapter 6, speaks about angels who fell from their created positions of authority, and it says, there are those who did not remain in their proper place of authority and were banished, and God has kept them in eternal chains. There's a mystery about Satan's origin. Where did this person come from? How did he fall? What exactly went on? We could spend a lot of time on that, and I'm not going to give it that kind of time. But somehow, here is an opponent whom God created. He's not God's equal. God created him. He has more power than a man, but less power than God. And in fact, we have Jesus testifying. Now, remember, Jesus was existed before he came to earth, But in Luke 10, verse 18, he tells his disciples he must have been referring to his pre-incarnate existence when he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Jesus understood the origin of the Satan as a fallen angel. It's a bit of a, in fact, more than a bit. It's a very deep mystery as far as we're concerned, and the Bible only hints at it. But here is Satan being interrogated by God who is superior to him, who he must do God's bidding. Remember the New Testament later calls him a roaring lion, seeking to devour men, particularly believing men. But let me remind you, he is always on God's leash. And God apparently in Scripture never lets go of that leash. Even though Satan does tremendous damage, he is not divine, he is not God's equal. Not at all. Well, here he is, cynically reporting. Well, yeah, I'm aware of that guy, Job, that you're talking about. Who wouldn't be godly? Look at what he's got. Look what you've done for him. You've poured so much on him in the way of goods and herds and servants. Good grief, God. Why would he not serve you? And so the Lord God says. Well, I believe he would serve me, even with all that, gone. You may go and touch this man, touch his goods, touch his wealth, touch his family, but you may not touch the man himself. And so Satan went off, subservient to God, limited by what God had said to do what he could do. And we'll see that more next week. Here's a way, I think, for you to picture Satan. If you have any sense of American history or world history in your mind, I know that uh, many, many of us, the majority of us in this room, were not alive during World War II. That's, that's uh, solemn for me to think about. There was once that we could talk about it as something that had happened pretty recently. And some of you lived through it and fought in it. I know that. But think if about what you know about Adolf Hitler near the very end of World War II. Hitler had destroyed millions of lives by his megalomania to control the world. But at the end of the war, the Allies, that is the British and Americans and Canadians and others, were, were already in Europe, had landed. They're moving eastward towards Germany, towards Berlin. The Russians were coming from the eastern lands, moving west. It was almost a contest, who will take Berlin first, And Hitler was in Berlin, in his bunker. Now, every halfway intelligent general in Germany knew the war was lost. They all knew it. They knew they were just fighting last, you know, desperate measures. And many of them were ready to just stop fighting and even surrender to the Allies if they didn't think that they might lose their own lives for doing it by Hitler's orders. But here was Hitler in his bunker cut off basically from communications, issuing order after order, attack, 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 attack. Germany will win. Everybody knew that was stupid, that it couldn't happen. But Hitler himself kept attacking right to the very end. I think that's an accurate way to picture the Satan in the Bible. He's a completely defeated foe. He knows it. Those who serve him know it, but he will not stop fighting until the very end when God disposes of him completely. Well, thirdly today, I'm asking this question aloud. Is it possible that Job deserved to be treated better than he was here? You know, it seems kind of like God was… If we want to speak this way, and I want to be reverent in saying this, it seems as if God was unkind in treating Job like a pawn on a chessboard, and saying, hey, Satan, let's play chess, and, and Job is, you know, the bishop on our board. Why couldn't God have sort of whispered in Job's ear, don't worry, Job, it's okay, I'm behind all this, and it's going to work out. He would have faced things completely differently. He would have been confident. God is in charge, but he didn't have that confidence because that was not revealed to him. Well, Job didn't see what the Scripture tells us we ought to see, that we really are pawns in a cosmic battle. Paul wrote in Ephesians 6, 12 to say, we wrestle not against flesh and blood alone, but against principalities and powers, against spiritual wickedness in high places. The tides and the forces that come and go and that run like tank treads across our lives sometimes are spiritual things that are of high origin we think oh it's all about my boss who treated me bad and i lost my job or or my mother in law who's impossible to deal with or we we give it an immediate cause and say well that's what's wrong god is saying no the the causes are higher and wider and deeper than you imagine There's cosmic warfare going on here, and and you're on the battlefield. And we would see things very differently if somehow someone would pull the curtain back for us to see what's really going on behind the scenes that cause an untimely death or tragedy or job loss or financial problem in our lives. Sometimes we wouldn't even see a cause, but we would just see ourselves as being there on the battlefield as evil is working against the people of God and the church of God. And yet, even in that, there are positive benefits from living on this cosmic battlefield. Our faith is being strengthened. It's being tested. We read about putting on the whole armor of God in Ephesians. You don't put armor on unless you know you're in a battle. Who would want to walk around in armor? It would be the worst clunky thing you could ever do. Not comfortable at all. But if you're in a battle, you want armor. And God is actually benefiting us by allowing us to taste this cosmic battle. Our faith is being tested, not necessarily destroyed. 1 Peter chapter 1 contains this word, for a little while we are being grieved by various trials, Peter says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, might result in praise and glory and honor in the final revelation of Christ. Is that saying God's letting you be tested so you'll end up destroyed? No. He's saying testing is going to refine you and establish you and strengthen you. Well, fourthly and finally today, I ask this big question, and it's one we'll face more as we go along. For what rewards are we really serving God This book of Job is going to indeed make us face the hard question that God allows his people. He allows his people to face really hard, painful suffering. Now, there's some of you that don't worship a God like that. You say, well, my God is love. He only wants good, and if I don't have all good, then somebody else must be calling the shots. Well, the book of Job says God is supreme and sovereign the whole way. At no moment did he yield his sovereignty, and yet his servant suffered hard things permitted by God. He said, all right, Satan, go and have your way. Is your Christian faith the cheap brand that says God owes me only good comforts and easy blessings, and if I'm getting less than that, God is unfair? There are many nominal believers that act as if that's what God has said. Satan's actually betting on the fact that that's what you believe and that the minute hardship comes to you, you will say, oh, I guess God has abandoned me now because good things are not happening. Only by letting Job be proven and tested in a furnace of affliction would we see that the glory of God is more important than his comforts? And you know, that's okay when it's Job. But what about when it's me or you who's losing the comfort? Some people would look at this council scene in heaven and say, why would God let an impudent fallen angel bully him into a strange deal? I would deny that there's any bullying God never lost control of what's happening here. Satan never gained the upper hand. It was necessary for a watching universe to see one man of God prove that God is worthy to be worshipped for his own sake even if everything else gets stripped away. You know what that means? That means us discovering that we are not the center of the universe after all. God is. He created us. We exist for Him. He will get praise. He will be adored. His honor will be visible to angels and all of humanity when Christian men and women go on worshiping Him even when His sweetest gifts have been torn out of their grasp. I'm closing with a lesson that will make you look forward, I hope, to more on Job in weeks to come. It's not... Said or even real directly implied yet in our text. But you're going to see Job become something more than just a man. He's going to be a symbol. He's going to be a symbol of another man. As a righteous man who did no real obvious sin, he is going to symbolize a more righteous man who did no sin whatsoever, Jesus Christ. And Job is going to come to represent the suffering of the one who was perfectly innocent, who excelled Job in every possible way, Jesus, Son of the highest God, who sinned in no manner at all and endured the greatest agony undeserved that any living man could even consider. And we're actually going to find that it's in him, beyond this book, Beyond the conclusion of this book, it's in Christ that all the hard questions that Job poses find their final answer. Let's pray together. Father, lead us in this study. It challenges us. It challenges common ideas. We think it's not fair what happened to Job. But it surely wasn't fair what happened to your son. And so we ask, O God, that you help us to put our own sufferings and troubles and challenges in perspective and see you as worthy of praise in all circumstances. We ask you do this work in us for the glory of Jesus. Amen.